you think more people go through that kind of a, an experience because we believe so much or we want to believe so much that there will be a dramatic change? Well, there's, there's so many layers to that question. There's a really complex question. I didn't feel comfortable with that at all. On the hour, every hour. On the hour, every hour. I mean, there was a, a lunch break. But, uh, yeah. um, the, these slides that I'm using today form the, the presentation that I've given many times. It's pitched at a room full of psychiatrists and, uh, and okay. ADHD specialists. Why is the focus so often, then, do you think, on dopamine? Is it because it's, quote-unquote, sexier, easier to understand? Welcome to episode one of Talk ADHD, a brand new evidence-based weekly podcast about ADHD and all things connected. In this first episode, we're taking a deep dive into medication. It's a topic that's inevitably going to come up when we're seeking assessment and diagnosis for ADHD. So we're answering questions such as, what is medication? Who can take it? When should we take it? How long should we take it for? I'm joined by Andrew J, senior nurse practitioner and ADHD expert from the Divergence Clinic. And we have a fascinating and in-depth discussion about the topic of medication. So grab yourself a drink, pop your headphones on, sit back and let's talk ADHD. Andrew, right then. ADHD medication. This is it. Episode one. And we're starting with... Probably the biggest topic for most people when it comes to ADHD, when they're first researching it, when they're waiting for assessment or after diagnosis, at some point, inevitably, medication is going to crop up. But it seems to come with lots and lots and lots of questions. Um, so this is why I'm so happy to be doing this with you, because you can answer the questions uh, and I get to ask them. So... Um, from your point of view, as an ADHD nurse, as somebody who's been in, in this professionally for so long, why do you think there's so much fear, confusion, so many questions about medication? It's about understanding, isn't it? It's about what it means to take a medication. It's not just about ADHD. It's what it means to us to go to, to someone who can prescribe a drug and, and then take that. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's not your run of the mill, go to the GP and, and, for example, an antidepressant. The GP prescribes an antidepressant, you take it and, you know, you have a review and see how things go. But when you're taking ADHD medications, we're asking people to keep an eye on their blood pressure. We're, we're, we're a lot more detailed in our descriptions of side effects. Um, and, and there's, there's a lot of hope, um, a lot of positive comments are made out there about the value of medications um, because prescribed well they can be you know they, they can be life-changing but I think that that is only a headline it's not the whole story um, uh, and it's not always the, the life change that people are looking for so mm -hmm. um, often people will apply their experience and generalize it and uh, that that can be unhelpful 
So there's okay. lots, lots to think about in in terms of medication. But it's, it's, it's also important to bear in mind that ADHD treatments are some of the most effective medicines in medicine. We're wow. not just talking about the most effective medicines in psychiatry, um, which they hands down are. Um, they're some of the most effective medicines in medicine, and therefore people have high expectations of, of what medication can deliver. Um, we've also got the issue that services tend to aim to provide medication, and that's it in terms of sort of health services. You know, your NHS mm. will lead to a diagnosis and the the um, nice guidelines that tell us what we can prescribe um, are, are very clear. On, on on what to do next that they always say if you're an adult the first thing to do is prescribe a medicine yeah, that's that's right. that's that's the guidance that we're given as soon as you're diagnosed as an adult the next thing that will happen according to the guidelines is you're offered a medication what's interesting and what just popped into my head there was i mean here we are in november 2023 way back in start of this year there was the panorama documentary and I'm going to make no more mention of this other than that was one of the points that was raised was, ah, why is it people get prescribed a medication? But because it's the guidelines, if you meet the criteria, if you meet the diagnostic criteria to say you have ADHD and it may be helpful, that's what clinicians are told is the first choice. So it's interesting, isn't it? That that's the reality yet. It was almost demonised for a while. Yeah, yeah. We, we we've got a a diagnosis that is said to affect between four and five percent of the population, the adult population, um, mm. and it's relatively new. You know, when I started out in ADHD uh, as an adult ADHD specialist, very very few people were diagnosed, um, I, and yes, there has been a mushrooming of awareness because. You know, it, it, it's affecting one in 20 people in the country. So, of yeah. course, there are a lot of people with ADHD. Um, you know, it, it, schizophrenia gets a lot of headlines. It's it's an attention-grabbing disorder. One mm. percent of the population has schizophrenia. So between four and five times as many people with ADHD as there are living yeah, with schizophrenia yeah. in the country. Um, yeah. So, so it, it's not an explosion of... Of, of ADHD, it's an explosion of awareness. Yes. Uh, and, and when that happens, you get different perspectives on that, on that, don't you? You, you know, yeah. there, there isn't a prevailing sort of understanding because it's new. People are developing their understanding, and that's, that's why you and I are doing this and why others yeah. do other podcasts. And I think it's really useful that people gather a different perspectives. Yeah. Um, I, I, because we're all different. Um, but but yeah, the the uh, the guidelines that drive clinicians and, and direct clinicians do tell us what to do. It, it, they they do say that medication is part of a bigger package, but the the, the design of services because there's such a, a huge demand um, is focusing in on something that is relatively straightforward to deliver in a medication, um, whereas the support that mentors, the coaches give, that a good ADHD nurse will give, 
Mm. Um, they're, they're somewhat softer, less tangible. You, it, it, you can't just, there's there's a prescription, take it. There's, there's more to it. Yeah. And I think it, whenever we give a prescription, we should be saying there's more to this than the effects of this medication. Now, there's an interesting point straight away. Do you think that's happening enough? And if not, do you think it is just because of the sheer volume of of people seeking assessments and diagnosis because of the, that increase in awareness that, that's putting pressure on all the systems, private and public, that means it that piece of the equation is being missed maybe too often? So, yeah. Um, look, I've worked in NHS services for children and adults. I've worked for a range of, of um, private providers before setting up my own. Um, and th- there are huge pressures you know, right the way through the system, everybody wants to deliver profound effect for as little as possible. And it costs a lot more to pay for somebody to sit and talk through and give a, a very personalized support through a journey of, of understanding a diagnosis as compared to writing a prescription. So for all the drugs can be expensive compared to paying for ongoing therapy or coaching or support, mm. um, you know, it's it, it's easier to configure a service that delivers a medication, checks it's safe, checks it's working, move on to the next. And you're going to get some positive outcomes there for some people. And we do, we do see that. Yeah. You know, it's possible to be started on a medication, have no conversation about ADHD at all, have a really positive response to that. And yep, that's really works for me. And, and mm. so some people, um, I think they're the minority, um the, the the work I've done on that, I found it to be about 30% will will have that sort of response. Um and, and at that level you can do a, a very basic sort of introduction of a medication. There's there's not a great need for lots of, of contextualizing the impact of that medication. People can do that for themselves sometimes. And I think that's about three out of ten. Um, what, what do you think that's based on? What what makes it out of those three out of ten? What makes it that effective for them versus other people? Is it to do with the? Is it to do with their presentation of ADHD? I was going to use the word severity then, but I know that's not quite the right term to use here. But you know, are we talking? You know, is it easier if you are inattentive versus combined? Is it, or is it just so personal? That the, the interaction with that individual is what dictates it. I, th- I think we're already hitting the nub of the issue here, and that is that a prescription isn't issued to someone who has no prior experience. When we prescribe a medication, it makes a change, and you know more so than most medicines that are available. So we we prescribe this substance that people then take, and they see a change, um, and for some people. That's the change they were looking for. It's exactly what they were expected. There aren't any sort of secondary consequences. Um, The idea of side effects is an interesting one that I think we'll probably end up talking a lot about today. Um, There are secondary consequences that often complicate things. Right. And, And again, from a clinical point of view, as much as the conversation about starting the meds is important and potentially those side effects. I like that distinction between side effects and perhaps secondary consequences. And again, you're right. I think some of the questions we've had really illustrate that as a, as a, as a point. Well, 
but do you think whether it's in the form of literature that people are given before the conversation of meds or, or at the appointment if this time, do you think there should be a little bit more highlighting of that just just on a surface level? Because I know we'll come on to this later. Um, there should be a conversation. There should be a sharing of, of pertinent information. You know, I, I'm not going to talk to... A, um, a man about the impact of the menstrual cycle on the impact of, of medications mm. for ADHD. But I will for a woman of childbearing age. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there are lots of examples like that. It's, it's about personalising that that understanding, pitching in at a level that, that is useful for the person who is going to be experiencing these things. Yep, yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> the very act yeah. of prescribing the medication, we are looking for a change. Yes. And that, that change is often not, in fact, usually not what people expect. And perhaps that is, that's the difference, that, that, that when we enter into this contract to take a medication, what we're told about what that medication is going to do very much impacts on our experience of using it. Yes, it does. Now, this is a point where I'm going I'm to ask a question of you, and it's something that I've... I've often said to, to my mentoring clients and when I've spoke, what I noticed when I first started titration for, uh, for medication, and I've noticed it with everyone else I've ever seen, people online who do their medication diaries or their, their experiences, I wonder if we all go through a very similar, and the way I phrase it is almost a perceived placebo effect. We are so convinced and often so desperate that the meds will do something, that it will be this, this huge epiphany, this life-changing feeling that we, we just expect it so much, we believe it, and we almost make ourselves feel something. I, I remember thinking I was slurring my words and that I was talking really slowly and that I was this different person. And I distinctly remember sitting in my living room asking my wife, saying, am I talking really slowly? And I say, nope, absolutely the same. No, I'm definitely talking slowly. And, and I was convinced until X amount of probably a fortnight, just under three weeks afterwards. And it was the first time I woke up, took the meds and went, you know, I don't think this is doing anything. But actually what I think had happened was the honeymoon period in my head had gone and suddenly the meds were doing what that dose could do, but it wasn't quite what I'd built up to believe. And then it's that, ah, well, now, you know, for me, do I phone my private clinic and pay X amount of hundreds of pounds to go, is this, is this right? Is this, am I, is this what it's supposed to do? Or do I just crack on with it? Do you think more people go through that kind of a, an experience because we believe so much or we want to believe so much that there will be a dramatic change? Well, there's, there's so many layers to that question. There's a really complex question. I'll pick it apart as best I can, but you might have to bring me back to certain points. Go on, so the first one, placebo effect. Yes. Every, every drug causes a placebo effect. Absolutely every drug. It's well-researched. It's the most researched effect there is. You know, the randomized control trials are founded on 
what happens when we give a placebo as compared to the active drug? And we see all the side effects that we see with the active drug in all of the populations that are taking the, the placebo, really commonly. So any drug wow. you take, you know, take a paracetamol, you're going to get a placebo effect because it isn't just about the chemistry. It's about, I am doing something about this. And putting this thing in my mouth and swallowing it is mm. me taking control of it where I couldn't when the teachers were shouting at me, when the boss was saying, you're late again. You know, I'm doing something about this now. So that placebo effect is there. It's, right. inherent, it's inherent in taking a medicine. So the expectation is already there. And, right. and that, okay. was, that was what I was saying about setting the expectations of what these substances will do when you swallow them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't get that right. And you say, you know, you just give that that headline, you know, you, your blood pressure might go up a bit, you might get these side effects, whatever, but you don't set the expectation of what's going to happen, then, yeah, you're going to see all these confounding psychological effects. Then, if you take, moving along, if you take a medication for the first time, your brain's never experienced it before, it's new it's going to impact on you more. So when we start ADHD medications, we start with a very, very low dose. It's not going to have an impact on your ADHD at all. It's going to tell us what the side effects are like. But a lot of people listening, uh, and and I, and I, th I think you as well, looking back, um, that first day, you get a very different impact. And it's because your brain's oh, never had this before. It's new. Whatever drug you take, if it's new, you, you, it, it's going to do it. It's going to have a more pronounced effect as that's you right, progress right. through titration. That's the the slow introduction of, uh, and building up of that dose. We get the body used to it and uh, and metabolizing it, and uh, and that's when it sort of all settles down. So there is invariably a honeymoon period when you start ADHD medications, and it's because your brain hasn't experienced this before. You've got no reference point. But just um, to pick up on that point, because I think that's really important. Again, I can't think of a time where I was told or anyone else has told me that they were told that on that first, or I presume even second, minimal dose, start of titration, what we're looking for is how does this interact in terms of side effects? Not this will have an effect on your ADHD. Yeah. So, so often people will say, well, it worked the first couple of days and then it, it stopped working. Right, yeah. But, that's, but again, that's right. everything you see. I mean, that's that's all over social media. Day yeah. one on X, oh, I'm so, it's, it's life-changing. Day 10, oh, it's not doing anything. That yeah. makes so much sense to look at it that way around, though. So so that effect, when it's that first dose, is something akin to what we can get to when we, we find the right dose for you. Right. Okay. So in my practice, that's what I'm working towards. Tell me what it was like on the first day. What 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 was different? And then we can work towards that with the right dose for you. So that becomes your benchmark, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Fantastic. That's but that's that's cleared that up for me, and I hope that makes sense to everyone else because like I say, it's such a common thing to hear. But do you also then think that's why people go through when the honeymoon ends, oh, it's not working, because now we've got the wrong perception of what working feels like. 
Well, that's it. Yeah. If if we set someone up to say, I'm going to prescribe you this stimulant, it's going to work all day and it's going to sort out your ADHD, we're setting yeah. ourselves up to fail straight away. Um because we don't know how that particular person's metabolizing it. We, we, we don't know enough. So in my practice, I, I work to let's find that peak effect. That's the first job. What dose does it take for you to see an effect an hour after you've taken a stimulant? Right. That, that's got to be the first goal. If you're aiming uh, and you're telling someone that, you know, we're going to start you with this, it's going to give you 12-hour symptom control across the day, and then it doesn't because they're, they're metabolizing it more quickly or more slowly. Instantly, you've got that doubt about the medication. So, so having those conversations with a prescriber is so important in setting out the, the expectations um, and, and what working at this stage looks like. Yeah. Rather, than, you know, it's, it's not an end point. The, the titration of, of medications is a journey. Um, and that first step is, yes, what does this stuff when it's new in your brain do? But how does that then settle in, and how how do you work with that? Those do are the you also of think? Sorry, you, folks, no, you're going to have to bear with us. This is two people with ADHD. We're going to interrupt each other constantly. So if you've never seen a podcast between two ADHD, is welcome. Um, the question that was just burning in my mind then, and I blurted out, was this: Do you also think that's why there's confusion or, or perception that the more I take of this drug? the better it will work, that, that people think it's a very linear process? Oh, Matt, that's a brilliant question. <laughs> because I thought <laughs> that, that, that everybody comes back and says, um, I, I need a higher dose because it's not lasting long enough. It's a very, right. very common thing that people come back to me and say. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's how my practice has evolved to, to this two-step thing. Let's find the dose first and then stretch it out, the, the duration of action. Um, because if if you just increase the dose of stimulant, it's not going to have any significant impact, a little bit of an impact, and I'll show you some graphs later about mm -hmm. this, on how long it lasts. So people, you know, the first thing I say when people say my medication's not working is when. Because if it's not working in the evening, it's not meant to be working in the evening. It's meant to have worn off. And, and for, for, for this, the initial phase of, of finding... Yeah, 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 yeah. no, I agree. Um, sometimes we would work to, to stretch that effect into the evening. People who work 12-hour shifts, you know, they, rarely do we see one dose of an extended-release stimulant covering a 12-hour shift. No. No. But, but that's that's not the job. That's not the first part of the job. The first part of the job is how much of this substance in the bloodstream gives the effect that we're looking for. Which, again, is a complete about turn from, I think, most people's understanding of how to approach it. Um, very briefly, and this is a question for later as well, but just as, as, as something that I think... I was doing some Google searches before we came on of the most common complaints, shall we say, when people are on meds and and one of the things that comes up all the time is a a feeling of a crash at a certain time every day now briefly and, and without going to it is it a crash or is it that that's the end of the efficacy period so you were just saying about it's not supposed to work in the evening is that your brain noticing the difference now 
but it feels like a crash. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. Um, so I think people know I spent eight years as an ADHD specialist before I was diagnosed. And I knew about this concept of crash from my clinical yeah. practice. But until I experienced it myself, I didn't understand it. Right. The literature doesn't really define it very well. So um, it's it's definitely a phenomenon. Um, and it, it, it's widely clinically recognized that this happens. It doesn't happen to everybody. It happens... Um, for different durations for different people as well. Mm. Um, and I, th I think you summarized it beautifully. It is that shifting from medicated back into ADHD and the disorientation of, of that, that gradual shift. Um, you know, you get used to having the impact of your medication. Right. That's what we were saying about that first dose, you know, yeah, but yeah, yeah. used to what it's like when it works, but the change particularly if you've got a um, coexisting autism spectrum condition, you know, right. that change is, is really difficult to wrap your head around. And, and until I experienced it myself, I remember it happening. And I thought, shit, the crash is real. And it, and it felt very different than what people were describing. Really? Um, for, for me, yeah, it was, it was it was a real revelation the first time it happened. I, oh, oh, right. I, I'm not just being nice saying I understand that there's a crash. There is this. <laughs> my experience is, yeah, you know, I, it, I'm disoriented. I'm tired. Um, I just need to stop. Um, mm. But if, if you think the, the, the brain is, it, it has this shifting focus, you know, there, there is a tipping point. Yeah. There is yeah. a, a minimum concentration of, of the drug in your bloodstream that will lead to improvements in focus and concentration. And yes, as the liver clears those substances out, that concentration tips to below. And, and you get this sort of, sometimes it can be quite dissociated, tired, distant, you know, woozy feeling. Um, and sometimes it's a couple of minutes, sometimes it's half an hour. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, the the journey back to unmedicated is something that in second and third appointments I'll look at with people um, because it's 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 not comfortable. And, you know, often it's happening at four o'clock in the afternoon mm. um, just because of how the, the, the medications are metabolized out. Well, that's no good. No. At the end of the working day, when you're, you know, everybody's flagging a bit, you're having this very different experience of, of mm. not just flagging, but zonked. Yeah. We well, see, the first time I, I was made aware of it was actually with um, somebody who had a, a child at secondary school. And their child was really struggling because just at the point they were coming home doing their GCSE revision, they weren't doing their GCSE revision. They were, doing it. and I remember the parents just going, "It's impossible. You just cannot revise. You can't, you can't do anything." And kind of, made, the way I described it to you, it made sense to me. But I suppose, what's the answer apart from be aware of that and and wait it out? I guess. Um, well, that that's one way you can go, and it it very much depends on your prescriber. So. Um, Lots of prescribers will add a top-up dose 
of something in the afternoon to offset or smooth off that journey back into unmedicated. Right. Um, right. Or delay it. You know, if, 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 if that person who's having that crash at 4 p.m. wants yeah. to delay it till 6, we can stop that level dipping below that effective concentration by topping it up a bit and allowing it to happen at a more convenient time. Gotcha. Um, it's interesting. It, Which... It's it's something that prescribers, you know, each individual prescriber does their own way. And, uh, and the more you do that sort of stuff and you add in additional doses and combining medicines, um, you move further away from the evidence base. Ah, okay. And why because, is that? Because, because well, you're building your own evidence base then? Because, yeah, because the, the evidence base is, is usually largely driven by the pharmaceutical industry proving that their product works. So mm -hmm. they're not invested so much in make, dealing with that situation at four o'clock at work when the medication wears off. Okay. All they want to prove is that between nine and four, it's working great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So the, the literature around sort of top-up doses um, is, is it's it's there, but it's it's a lot it's a lot thinner on the ground. I think. Yeah, um, I can. Well, it makes sense. Why? Okay, so this is this is leading me into a shift of uh, of of pace and information. I suppose at this point. Now we we, we we've done this brief introduction or this in depth introduction into why meds and and some of the common things. I think when we we said we were going to do this as episode one. Part of the reason behind it was we did a we did a pilot a couple of weeks ago um, addressing the the shortage of medication over here in the UK as well. If anyone's listening abroad, maybe slightly different. But a lot of what came out of that was you did a a short presentation on that evening about what meds are, what they actually do, what's that, what's their purpose, and how do they do it. Um, now, without question. That was the, the 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 piece of information that most people found most most useful, and and we you and I spoke sort of before we we hit record about this. It's quite strange that that either points to a, a lack of understanding in the broader sense about what the medication does, particularly this conversation stimulant, non-stimulant, um, or, or or another. So. This is the the point where I think it'd be really good to to lean on your clinical knowledge and your 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 experience as a as a prescriber here. I know you've got some information. Um, is there anything you want to say by way of a disclaimer, protecting yourself about the information before we we show anything before we dive into this? Um, yeah, yeah. So I I can only give general advice. The the subtleties of prescribing and the individuality of a prescribing response is really, you know, it, it's there. There are too many variables for me to say things that will apply specifically to your situation. My goal in sharing this information is is to make the the basic science accessible to people. Because then you could take that information to your prescriber and have a conversation. What I can't do is give general advice. So we've just talked about the idea of giving someone who's experiencing a crash at work at four o'clock a top of, of medication. Hmm. 
I can give you information to take to your prescriber and have that conversation, but I can't say that's what you should do in your particular situation because there are many reasons why that wouldn't apply to to some people. So the the advice I give is designed to inform you, to stimulate your own thinking, um, to help think differently about how these medicines are working so that you can then take that information to your prescriber and have a more informed conversation, um, which any prescriber should welcome. Yes. I think if if someone is, is playing down the fact that you've come with information then they're not really engaging in a a, a a therapeutic alliance that is designed to optimize your medication you know, that makes sense that, yeah so it's, yeah it's, that's perfect yeah I, I, obviously i want i wanted to give you the opportunity to to exclaim uh, to, to explain that and, and put the disclaimer around that because you know because it's your information um so here here's the plan uh, i know you've got slides prepared um you go through them as you will. If I'm stuck, confused, um, I will be the voice of maybe not so much reason and I'll stop you uh, and ask questions. But, um, yeah, go for it. Tell us what you can um, that, that helps inform those conversations. Okay. So would you like me to talk through the guidelines before we go through the science? That would be a good starting point. So already you're just seeing slides that have been shown to doctors. Um, the, these slides that I'm using today form the the presentation that I've given many times. Um, and it, it's not pitched at a podcast. It's pitched at a room full of psychiatrists and, uh, okay. and ADHD specialists. So I welcome any questions um, as, we, as we go along because there's, there's invariably going to be jargon and i may even slip into it myself and i apologize but just pull me back matt if i do that no that's absolutely fine okay so the guidelines are different for adults and and children um but i'll start with the guidelines for children um they tell us to always use methylphenidate first that's the active ingredient in ritalin um but also concert medicinet excel there are a range of them um and i'll explain what the differences is, are between those medications further down the line so okay. always always methylphenidate first for children if after 6 weeks the guidelines tell us of of taking a dose that's effective so that's not six weeks from starting that's six weeks from getting to a dose that should be doing something right the guidelines say then we move on to elvance listex amphetamine and if that then doesn't work so we we tend to see um this is evidence from the adult population but 70 percent of people will respond positively to that first medication right okay of the remaining 30 percent two-thirds of those will have a positive response to the second one so the, the guidelines then take us into what is referred to as third line, which is either immediate release dexamphetamine, and I'll explain that language a bit because I think people get tied up on this immediate release, extended release thing. They get confused mm-hmm. by it, so I'll explain that in a moment. If, if Elvance works but it's lasting too long, which can happen often with children, um, then we would move to dexamphetamine, so it's a shorter duration of action, or... If the stimulants haven't been tolerated, then we would go to the non-stimulants, atomoxetine or guanfacine. So they're the licensed products for young people. Moving Moving along to what we see, I'll leave that in case anybody wants to read it, what we see for adults. What that slide is talking about is that there should be 
much more than just medications. Um, in, in no, that's ADHD. interesting. So that, that's part of the NICE guidelines, though. J- just to pull that, it should be a multimodal approach was the, the phrase I saw what? there. That's yeah. NICE guidelines. That is the guidance. That's what the evidence tells us we should be doing. Right, okay. So, So it's not just about medication. And for children, the guidance is don't go rushing in with medication. Okay, so the first step for children is not medication. Oh. Okay. Right, okay. Um, and I think we've got a question about that for later on. We do, so we'll yes, come back, so there you we'll go. Come back to that. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. For adults, the story is a little different. For adults, the first thing we do is give a choice between Listex amphetamine or a methylphenidate preparation, usually an extended release. Let me cover this idea of immediate release and extended mm-hmm. release. So we refer to the medication in its simple form as immediate release. It immediate release, immediately releases all of its content. So however many milligrams are in that tablet, they're immediately released relative to extended release. With extended release preparations, there is an immediate release component, so some of its content will be released straight away. And then by a series of technologies, we delay the release of the rest of the content. Right. Okay? So that when we say immediate release, it doesn't, as soon as you take it, immediately work. They take somewhere around an an hour to, to reach that peak level. But once it's reached that peak level, there's nothing adding more in from an extended release preparation, so the liver just clears it out again. So that's that's what immediate release is. And then extended release is, yes, there's some straight away, and then somehow, either by um, a dissolving um, polymer or a, actually a mechanical mechanism in, in concert that has an actual very clever mechanical mechanism that pumps out the drug from inside the, the hard tablet. Um, there, there is a, me- a mechanism that is pushing more um, right. medicine out into the system in a delayed ways, which prolongs the effect of the medication. So extended okay. release is about a longer action. Um, but irrespective, the active ingredient is, is the same. It's either methylphenidate or it's dexamphetamine. So the L on the dexamphetamine there, the first line of LDX, that's... That's list uh, dexamphetamine. Is that extended release? Yes. Right. I'll, 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 I'll give a bit of an explainer of, of what list dex, how list dexamphetamine extends its release a bit further down the line. So... Um, if if either of if, if whichever one the adult chooses, and you should be given that choice, the guidelines ask prescribers to give that choice and give you the information that I'm about to give you um, about why different ones are preferable. It doesn't matter which one you choose. The literature says there's a seventy percent chance of it working, and if you're in the unfortunate thirty percent, two thirds will respond to the other one. Right, that second line choice, and then. Moving on, if if extended release methylphenidate and listex amphetamine don't work, as with the children, we move into these third line situations where we might use dexamphetamine if Elvance is lasting too long and you're not metabolizing it out of your system, or we would use atomoxetine 
We don't have a licensed option for guanfacine. It's guanfacine's only licensed for use with children. We do see it prescribed, and I have prescribed it for adults. Um, what does that mean? Sorry, because I, I could see that scaring some people. When you say it's not licensed, but we prescribe it, what does licensed mean in those terms? Okay, so the um, the medicines regulators require um, pharmaceutical companies to evidence how their drug works. So they, they have to do research. They submit a portfolio of research that says this drug does this and here's the proof. Right. And on the strength of that research, so long as it's accepted, a license is granted. So if that research has only been done with children, the regulators can only issue a license for use with children. Right. And we see this, sort of, I'm long enough in the tooth to have dealt with um, in the early days of adult ADHD, there wasn't a licensed product because all of the research was done with children. We, right. we, we didn't recognize adult ADHD. Mm -hmm. Then there was no, no support in research. And it's only the evolution of these medicines where it's been in the, the, um, the pharmaceutical industry's interests to evidence that it works in, in adults that they've done that research. So right. oft, often, um, like more often than you would think, we prescribe outside of the license. And what that means is the, lic the license isn't there to support the prescribing because the research isn't there to, to support the prescribing. So in clinical that's practice, based on your experience as a prescriber yeah. and what you've... Okay, fine. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Um, so effectively, we've got these three molecules that can work for, for adults that are licensed, and we have um, other choices. You know, we don't, as a prescriber, I'm not bound by licensing. I can prescribe outside of a drug's license and do. If I do that, I take personal responsibility for that. So if something goes wrong with a licensed drug and it's been prescribed as directed, by the, by the people who make it, the drug company take responsibility if something goes wrong. If I prescribe an adult guanfacine, I take personal responsibility for anything that goes wrong with that. So my, my professional reputation is on the line rather than me saying, well, I did everything the drug company said do. Mm. Therefore, you know, they're responsible. Their research didn't protect you. But gotcha. if I prescribe... And, and that often, with less experienced prescribers, will limit their prescribing because they haven't got the experience to, to, to move outside of, of the, the research that supports mm. the decisions. Makes um, sense. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all there designed to keep us safe. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm very aware if I'm prescribing off-license, how much more vulnerable I am professionally than if I do what, what the manufacturer intended me to use. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Okay. It's important that we, we have a little bit of a, a revise or an introduction of, of, um, of the science that underpins this. Ah, so, okay, yeah. Now we're going to come back to what what a brain it's how a brain works. I think it's a really important first step. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. So a brain is a sack of cells that are all linked together. They communicate with each other, um, and thoughts are essentially a, a, a symphony of electrical signals being passed between cells with chemical transmitters. Right. So quite a complex idea there. The, the, the electrical activity 
is moved around these cells, which aren't sort of connected by wires. They're connected by these gaps called synapses. And there are a range of neurotransmitters um, that perform different functions. And by them being released into these gaps, the concentration goes up. And if an electrical signal comes from the top of the screen there, if there's enough of the right neurotransmitter, that signal will be sent further down onto the, the receiving end. Yeah? Right. I've been thinking about this since, since I, I, I gave this presentation the other day. Uh, and we we talk a lot about raising dopamine levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most, the most common word you hear in ADHD. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm seeking the dopamine. If we just injected a lot of dopamine into a brain, mm. it wouldn't work. Okay, so it's not what, just what, what wouldn't what, what what do you mean it wouldn't work? It wouldn't well, do what we think it wouldn't it would have do. The, yeah, it wouldn't have the same impact as, as ADHD medications have. It's a lot more complex than just well, if if we you know if we, if we put a brain in a bucket full of dopamine, it's just going to be totally right. laser focused and focused. It's not like that. Um, it's it's about the the flow of of these chemicals, the balance of these chemicals. So it's it's not enough just to flood the brain with dopamine and everything will be all right. That's not what we're talking about here. So um, I imagine we'll move on to things like supplements and, and, and that sort of stuff. It's quite complex, the answers to the, the questions that I'm expecting you to ask me around supplements. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first one then is... If that's the case, so if we can't just plunge our brains into a bucket of dopamine or inject them with dopamine and it do anything, yeah, why is the focus so often then, do you think, on dopamine? Is it because it's, quote-unquote, sexier, easier to understand? We know that people call it... Why the focus in the first place? Because there is such a clear link between boosting the, the concentration of this synaptic level of dopamine and improvements in focus and concentration. So it, and we get this with, with depression as well. It's, and I find it easier to talk about depression in this, in this sense. Right. So antidepressants prevent the reuptake of serotonin. We're looking at increasing the amount of serotonin in the synapse. Hold on, before you go any further, because there's confusion, what does that mean? When we talk about reuptake and we hear about reuptake inhibitors, what are we trying? Does that mean we're trying to extend the time that there is serotonin available? Let, or we're trying me, to reduce yeah, it? Let me explain that. We'll go back to the, that animation um, and, and hopefully that will make sense. So. We're organic creatures, uh, and we've evolved. And yeah. The brain, the brain has evolved, and this this function is is um, key here. We don't have an unending supply of dopamine. Yeah, right. there's, there's a finite amount in the system. Um, so, the cells have developed this great recycling mechanism. So, on the screen here, so we we see these cells. On the on the the top, um, the top sort of brain cell has this yeah. pump cell in it, um, and it's designed to pull back and recycle what transmitter hasn't been used. So it bundles it back up into these 
Um, so that's what we can see whizzing left and right from the middle so, yeah. of the two. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what we can do is block those tubes and prevent the recycling process or delay the recycling process. Yeah. Right. So we do that with, with with sticky chemicals that get in the way, and I'll talk about those um, in relation to ADHD later. But back to, to depression, we stick serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI, serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, and they're specifically targeting serotonin um, reuptake pumps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We know that when we do that, because of the research that's been done on antidepressants, that the mood lifts. But that right. does not that does not mean that it, it doesn't logically follow that low serotonin equals depression. There isn't the science to support that. All we know is when we boost that serotonin level, the mood lifts. So as depression isn't a low level of serotonin, we could extend that to ADHD and say, well, ADHD is more than a low concentration of dopamine. But we know that when we boost that concentration of dopamine, we see improvements in symptoms of ADHD. Ah, okay. It's a subtle, it's a subtle point, but it's a really important one. Mm. Um, yeah, it because, is. Because ADHD isn't a low dopamine disorder. It's, we see low dopamine. You can see it in a, an fMRI scan. So we, we, can, we can actually scan human brains and watch this. We can see blood flow change. We can see concentrations of dopamine change in the ADHD brain. It is possible to do a brain scan and see ADHD. Hold on. Okay? Sorry, before you go any further, because I have seen this in writing online. You just said something very important to me. Okay. ADHD is not a low dopamine disorder, I think, was what you said, or along those lines. Yeah, we don't have the science to, to, to say that low dopamine is the cause of ADHD. It's, an, it's something that we see in ADHD, just like low serotonin concentrations are something that we see in depression. Right. The reason I'm scratching my head is because I can count multiple occasions where I have seen it called a low dopamine deficiency, a deficiency of dopamine, a dopamine problem, literally screaming from the rooftops, I've got ADHD and the problem is that and only that. But that's not the whole picture. If it was that and only that, we'd have an even better response to medication, wouldn't we? Yeah. If it was that straightforward... Yeah. Nothing in the brain is that straightforward. And we can't tell what the, the drugs where to increase the concentrations of dopamine. It, right. it's, it, it's quite a, a blunt science, really. It's well, it would be, flawed. yeah, but I mean, that's, that, I think that's really important to, to, to talk on that just briefly because that's what is said all the time. I've seen it in, in training. I've seen it in... On websites, I've seen it from, you know, lots of sources. This is, blanket, what it is. So <laughs> let's then take it further. What else is it? <laughs> where, where do we go from the synapses and what you were showing us? If, the, if, if we understand what reuptake means and, and we're using various sticky chemicals to block those, those receptors, what's, what's next in that? Okay. Um, 
that there's a lot more to ADHD than biological neurotransmitter imbalance. Just like any other mental health condition, you know, I think ADHD has a hard time because the the dopaminergic drugs are so impactful on ADHD. Mm it's quite a, an easy headline to grab isn't it if you boost yeah. your dopamine levels you will concentrate better and that is a fact we see yeah. that but we don't know why right and it's that that's important <laughs> isn't it we don't know why we don't know why um yeah. and, and therefore that's why why we see all these difficulties in adjusting the treatment because it's not as straightforward as flicking a switch oh right I, I need to dial up my dopamine yeah that that helps but there's so much more to it than that okay. um so take me on then. What what comes? Let's let's go through those sides. So where where do we go from? If that's the beginning of understanding, so that's what we have: receptors and transmitters. What are we trying to do with medication for ADHD? We're trying to create those those effects that we see in research. So we're right. looking for improvements in focus and concentration, reduction in those core symptoms of ADHD um, in terms of inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity. But we're also a good clinician. will be looking for those other sort of softer, less high profile things like the, the, the difference in emotional regulation that happens right. and the changes that happen there. Um, and how I approach it is, introducing a different state of mind a different way of processing information it's not making your adhd go away it's giving you a different perspective to see things from yeah that sometimes you might choose you know if if i'm going to do write a report i'd much prefer to do that with medication on board than not however if i'm going to do something creative um, and, and and try and think bigger picture. The last thing I need in my brain is medication. Mm. So it's 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 about developing a relationship with these two very different states of of brain function. Yeah. Um, and and when for, for stimulants, when do I want that effect of of a stimulant medication, and when do I not? And a good okay. prescriber should be, I think, supporting people to 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 genuinely understand that. And well, that came that. up as a question as well, so I'm going to bring you back to that. So let's talk then, if we can, stimulants. We talk about stimulants and non-stimulants all the time. Again, attention-grabbing stuff. What are they? What do they do? How do they do it? And are they different? Okay. Let's move along to my next slide because that will help answer that question. Really well, you sounded so- like Chris Whitty then. <laughs> Next slide, please. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just to bring in for a smart bang to twenty twenty. Sorry, <laughs> I can only, I can only hope to be as anywhere near as clever as Chris Whitney. <laughs> oh, the guy's got a brilliant mind. Okay, yeah. so methylphenidate yeah. um, is is that first choice for children or an, an option um, of two for adults. I'm just trying to fight with my computer to actually move this slide on. Now, is that methylphenidate? I mean... Okay, so, so this is... A, a, um, we've doubled up the amount of uh, 
cells we've got on the on the screen now. We have. Uh, we're, we're seeing um, dopamine moving around in these little sacks, ready to be. Yeah. Yep, yeah, so they come through, and if enough's there, we pass the signal on. What methylphenidate will do is it will block the recycling of these dopamine transporters that are pulling the used dopamine back in for reuse, repackaging and reuse. Right. And the same is happening on the other side of the screen with the noradrenaline. Right, we'll come on to that one in a minute. Yeah, again, I know. I've... What's D80? Um, that's just a, an abbreviation for dopamine transporter. Oh, okay, fair enough. Just checking. Yeah. So, uh, NET right. the same, noradrenaline. Oh, transporter. Transporter. Okay. So we're blocking the reuptake, which makes yeah. it more effective for our brains to utilise that neurotransmitter. Is that am I understanding so, that? So what's happening there is because we're blocking the reuptake of it, we're increasing the concentration. There's more molecules of dopamine in the gap between the cells right so Which when an electrical when an electrical signal comes down from the top if there's yeah. enough of a concentration the dopamine will pass that signal on to the receptor of the next cell right and so so goes on the story yeah um, but okay. all that, all that methylphenidate will do is block those recycling tubes moving along to dexamphetamine we see a very similar picture um, and we're seeing very similar actions initially. So I'm going to let the animation bring in the uh, the dexamphetamine, which is a pentagon. Um, so just like methylphenidate does, it blocks those tubes, the recycling tubes, preventing the reuptake of dopamine and noradrenaline. Mm. But dexamphetamine has a trick up its sleeve. Um, it, it, it's sneaky. And what it does is it, it's, it's so like dopamine that these cells that, that have these recycling tubes on actually believe that it is dopamine. And as you see now on the screen, it pulls that dexamphetamine inside the cell. And when it gets inside the cell, pop, it bursts more of these containers of dopamine, which therefore means even more dopamine is released into the, the synapse. So even more transmission can happen. Okay. Which you would think, therefore, that dexamphetamine would be more effective than methylphenidate, and that's not what we see in the literature. Um, they're different in nature, but um, we don't see dexamphetamine being the, the gold standard. And I presume that, again, is just down to how individuals metabolise it in their liver and, therefore, the effects it yeah. has on their brain. Well, well, no. Um, so th this is about the action. There's, there's a whole other story about metabolism. This is just oh, okay. what the chemical does when it goes into the brain. Um, so they, they're the stimulants, and there are a range of preparations that I'll talk you through if we uh, if we've time. Yeah. Um, but moving on to the non-stimulants, first we've got atomoxetine, um, which doesn't directly act on dopamine at all. And when I first heard about that, I'd already just wrapped my head around the fact that I was giving stimulants <laughs> to hyperactive people, and that didn't yeah. make sense. But now you're you're telling me that a noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, which was de which designed as an antidepressant and failed clinical trials as an antidepressant, somehow by blocking the noradrenaline transporter, you can see the circle there on yeah. the screen, the, the dopamine's still flying freely. 
How on earth does that impact on ADHD? Well, there's a really sensible answer to that question. There aren't very many dopamine transporters in the prefrontal cortex. The majority of dopamine recycling that's happening in the prefrontal cortex is done through these noradrenaline transporters. So actually the noradrenaline transporters will impact on dopamine as well. Right. Hold 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 that thought. I know I, it's a complicated one. I all I'm hearing is adrenaline and I'm sure other people are thinking, wait a minute, when did adrenaline start coming to noradrenaline and adrenaline, are they the same, similar offshoots, completely different? What what, what is noradrenaline anyway? Related. Um, right. It's, it's, they are related, but it's probably best not to get into that level of detail. Just, I, I would, for the purposes of our conversation, just because they sound the same doesn't mean that they are the same. Okay. There, there, there is a relationship between noradrenaline and adrenaline, just as much as there is between adrenaline and cortisol. But that that is happening in the rest of the body. Um, okay. So, for the, pur- for the purposes of thinking about medication, call it something else if you need to. Fair enough. Um, it's just you know it it just happens to be this chemical in this situation so in the prefrontal cortex which is the front of the brain where the executive function sits there aren't many dopamine transporters so most of the recycling is happening by these noradrenal transporter cells right and that that is how adamoxetine has its its mode of action um There's not really much to add to that, really. Is that- I, suppose, I, I suppose one thing I should say, because you, you hinted towards this at the beginning, um, it's a non-stimulant. That's how we talk about atomoxetine. But it has side effects like a stimulant. Why? Because it has effects like a stimulant. It's increasing the, the dopamine concentration synaptically. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it's going to have if side effects very like the stimulants. Yeah, makes sense. So. So I think atomoxetine is closer to a stimulant than a non-stimulant, aside from the very clear difference, and I think this is why we separate them out this way and call atomoxetine a non-stimulant. We save the name stimulant for things that are shorter acting. So stimulants wear off. Oh, right. Atomoxetine, you have to take it every day to maintain that level, just like you do with an antidepressant. If you miss a couple of days, the the levels drop. You know about it. So so it's the same with atomoxetine. If if you miss a dose of atomoxetine, you're going to see deterioration in your concentration for a few days while you build that level back up again. Whereas with stimulants, if you miss a dose, it doesn't matter because that action is all happening there and then from the dose that you've taken. Well, okay. the, the effect yeah. of atomoxetine as a non-stimulant is cumulative. It's building up over time. Right. So you, to, to pick up on a point you made, if we were taking, for example, Elfans and you want to do a creative task, you might choose to say, I'm going to have an Elfans free day. But if yeah. you were taking atomoxetine, you're taking you atomoxetine whether you're having a creative day or a concentration day. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. For me, there's a lot of flexibility in stimulants um, because you've got that option to to choose which which state. Whereas with with non-stimulants, you have to take them every day, build up that level in your your system in order to get the effect. Okay. Um, And again, it's a question I'd posit to anyone that watches or listens to this. How many people were told 
there was a choice, where, in, particularly in terms of stimulants, that it wasn't every day. But I didn't know that. I thought I was on it for life, every day, and, and won't be tired if I didn't. Yeah. And that's the baggage that these medicines come with, isn't it? It's all that, that paternalism of medicine, mm. um, which I, I would like to move away from. Um, yeah. I do try to in my clinical practice. Um, yeah. there, there's, an, there's an element of, of protection that comes from paternalism, isn't there? That yeah. Where, you know, doctor knows best. Some, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes people just say, I'll trust your judgment. Yes. I, don't, I find that really difficult because that's not owning your own treatment. That's that sort of – because the, the subtext of that is, and if it goes wrong, therefore it's on you. Whereas if I give you the information and you make decisions yeah. um, that, based on information, you, yeah. you make a much stronger decision. Um, so my background, my background before ADHD was psychosis, and a lot of psychosis work is convincing people that they need their medication. Right. They don't have the insight into. So a, a lot of my clinical experience before working in ADHD was helping people understand the value of taking a medication. And I mm. learned through being a psychosis specialist that you do that by giving people the facts about their their medication, not by saying, "I, I the research says this is the best one for you. And therefore. I think so, therefore, you know, it, it yeah. should be, always should be a partnership. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, one of my lines at work is I'm only an expert on ADHD. I'm not an expert on you. And it's only by you bringing your expertise about you and joining that with my understanding of the medications and, and having worked, the experience of having worked with other people that I can yeah. help you and guide you to the right treatment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, think, I think that should be the language that, that's used in prescribing treatments for ADHD. Without question. So um, am I right then? There's one you mentioned we were talking about because we've done the stimulant, non-stimulant to a degree. Guanfacine is... This animation highlights the difference for guanfacine. So guanfacine doesn't work to increase the concentration of dopamine in the synapse. So all the other ADHD treatments, all the other licensed treatments do. Yeah. Um, guanfacine doesn't. Um, so guanfacine, use, it, it's complicated. Um, but it's, if you've ever been in a car crash and time slows down, you'll know this action in your brain. Okay. So you know that uh, it doesn't have to be a car crash, any situation where you feel a threat. Yes. And you've got that experience of time slowing down. Yeah. 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 That is, that's a, a, um, a brain response to, to a perceived danger. Right. And what, what that response is, is, um, targeting the thought processes into sort of the, the more the more heavily used routes. So okay. you're not getting distracted by all, all the the rich complexity of thought. It's just I need to not crash into the central reservation or whatever it is. You haven't right. got time to think, oh, you know, mm -hmm. are the kids going to be strapped in the back? Are they going to be all right? You just you're you're in survival right. mode. Um and, and so the star there then is blocking the transmitter. For so, so it's not. What oh. what this star is doing is actually stimulating 
the receptor. So it's it's acting as if it was dopamine, but it's, well, it's actually acting as if it were, is, is a different neurotransmitter. It's that thought process feeling like that. Yeah, so, but it's, it, what it does is by latching onto that receptor on, on the receiving cell, that shuts down all those side channels and focuses in that thought into the sort of the well-trodden path. Gotcha. Um, just like your brain does automatically when you're in a high-risk situation. Right. Yeah. Um, so consequently, guanfacine has completely different side effects. You don't mm-hmm. see... You don't see um, blood pressure go up. You see it go down. Um, you, there, there are a range of a, a very different side effects because it's doing a different thing in the yeah, brain. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'll is it a medical medication? Is it a medication again? Talking about is it cumulative? Is it you can skip a day? What? Where does it's it an every, it's an everyday program? Right. Yeah. Okay. Fine it's got to keep doing that right so let me just go over this those are the main drugs the main compounds so methylphenidate um dexamphetamine, dexamphetamine atomoxine. Atomoxine, and guanfacine. guanfacine right so we, we we have all these options but they should come and i agree with you they should come with the the person being given some agency over what what do they feel would work for them? What did has it felt for them? As well as with adults, other support, um, which which I suppose leads into this often sort of held belief that meds are a panacea. You get a psychostimulant med, that's it. ADHD be gone. ADHD be cured. Whatever. Looking at all of that, it seems pretty evident that, that can never be the case. No, it can't be because ADHD is so more, so much more than just the impact of reduced transmission as a result of dopamine, noradrenaline. It's, yeah. it's a human experience. You know, someone with ADHD yeah. has lived with ADHD all their life and the consequences of ADHD all their life. And as a prescriber, I can't come into someone's life and pat myself on the back because I've dialed up the, the concentration of dopamine and help someone focus and concentrate. Because, you know, even, even if, you know, in, in those, those more rare cases where that's, that works, there's still the adjustment to what you asked for. You asked yeah, me to help you focus and concentrate. And I think a lot of the side effects of medications actually come from the shock of adjusting to this difference. And if, if people are better informed about what's happening in their bodies, in their brains, they're more accepting of, of these less wanted effects. You know, they, uh, yeah. side effects are only effects that you didn't want. They're not, you know, some mysterious thing that that can't be helped. They're, no. they're, they're, just, they're just the drug acting somewhere else in the brain than we want it to. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, now, you mentioned this at the start. So I'm going to come back to this briefly. Um, here am I sat knowing I have autism and ADHD, but I didn't know I had autism when I got my ADHD diagnosis. Now, I am at the point where I firmly believe that's why when my meds were working, I felt so different because it was the first time my autism had actually 
if you like, shod, if, if that's the right word. My autism was more prevalent in my behaviour. And I'd never noticed that because of the extreme nature of my ADHD before. Is that, I see you nodding, so is that something you inherently agree with, that very often one of the <laughs> effects of meds for ADHD is, oh, actually, now you recognise that as well? See it all the time. Um, to the point that I, I prepare people for it, I have that conversation about it. Um, I, and is it a shock that if we increase someone's ability to concentrate, to focus on something, is it really a shock that communication difficulties, social difficulties, sensory processing becomes more overwhelming? Mm. It shouldn't be really because your attention is, if you're drawn to a sensory input and your attention is boosted, that sensory input is intensified. Yeah. So of, of course we see an enrichment of the focus on those sensory um, stimuli, we see sort of more time to to think about what you're going to say. And often when there's coexisting autism, we see people getting stuck in yes. the, the awkwardness of, you know, how, how where normally you would be used to um, just impulsively saying something and then maybe regretting it, but it's already been said with medication and ADHD plus autism, we see people get stuck. And do you think, again, because it's a phrase I've heard before, why, in fact, I, I remember somebody saying it to me, a family friend, maybe four or five months after diagnosis being on meds, and the comment was, why do you seem worse now than before you got your diagnosis and before you got your meds? Well, I don't think it's that my ADHD was worse. It's just I was a completely different person and I had yeah. no explanation for it. I had no yeah. reference for the way my brain was working or the way I was thinking. But but I understand how that came across as you've got worse, you have. Yeah. I paid a lot of money for this not to be worse. What do you mean worse? <laughs> well, it, well, it's 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 at worst. My medication's not working. All these ideas. Um, it, 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 if you expect just an improvement in focus and concentration, then you're going to, get a shock when it does other things yeah so we see you know anxiety and depression are listed side effects of stimulant medications okay but if i've spent my life unfocused and hyperactive and you come and give me this amazingly powerful medication am i not going to have a human reaction to all those years what could it what could life have been like if i'd had that mm. Mm. um all of a sudden I can focus on the things that worry me where yeah. in the past I've just let it slide. Cause I, you know, I've moved on to something else before that. So often side effects actually are, I think, secondary consequences of an, an effect. So yeah, my medication is not working is not a line that I take. There's no. more, always more to it. If the medication's not working, what is it that it's not doing? When is it not doing it? Why is it not doing it? That, those are the thoughts that go through my mind as a prescriber. Oh, 100%. And I think it's, it's, it's so important that anyone who, who listens to this, wherever they are, understands that, and you've said this several times, medication, whichever it is that you take, has the primary purpose of helping you to focus and concentrate better. That's that's, that's what that's what it's there to do. If that's you start it. 
feeling i know it's the phrase we use in our household you know wife's got adhd and autism so have my two sons we say we have big feels we feel everything well those feels certainly for me and my youngest who took stimulus for a while oh boy they got bigger they got drastically bigger and i why am i so depressed why am i so emotional because I'd never, as you say, I'd never had the space is the way I described it in my brain yeah. to feel them before. And it was new. It was, oh, oh, I don't like this. This doesn't feel normal. But actually, it was new normal. Yeah. You, you have to readjust or adjust, I should say, to those those feelings. Um, right. Before I move on, is there anything else that you think you want to add to that? clinical slash scientific information yes, yes um, there is I'd, I'd like to share this with you because it's an important it. it's an important idea about too much medication okay and i i think it's it's something that okay can help people feel comfortable with with managing doses and and working with titration so okay, lots of fancy that's words that's on the screen here let's not get Let's not get too caught up. Have you got that on your screen? Yeah, I have. It's okay. a clone my cool. hypothesis, right? Okay. So, so yeah, don't get caught up with the big words. Get focusing on this rainbow. Okay. So yeah, the the graph here we've got a a, a hump, yeah. which shows um, low levels of dopamine all the way up to too much dopamine. Okay, so this is what's going through my mind as a prescriber when I'm titrating a stimulant, okay? Mm -hmm. um, someone with ADHD comes to see me, they don't have good concentrations of dopamine, and it looks like we all know, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, I then introduce a medication. What I'm aiming to do as an ADHD the specialist is getting to that green zone in the middle, yeah. Right. Where, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Where we've got this optimal level concentration of dopamine and noradrenaline, not to you know the Goldilocks zone, if you like. Yeah. Um, where the the focus is there, but we're not seeing these problems that come in in the orange and reds. So as the concentration of dopamine and noradrenaline goes up, we take more higher doses of, of ADHD treatments. We start to see excessive dopamine in the synapses. And that's when we see agitation. We see a dip in effect of medication. So too much medication can often look like not enough. Okay, um, but if you continue to to raise that dose, we we move into the realm of my my former specialism, which is psychosis. Psychosis, wow, is is characterised by excessive dopamine transmission. See, I'm reading that red zone, and I'm wondering now. This is a question because it'll come up. Could that also lead to if people are predisposed to having addictive personalities? Could that lead to to addictions being more or being more at risk of addiction if there's too much dopamine as well? It's a, it's a slightly different angle on the on the same story. Yes, um, the addictions are about the peaks and troughs of dopamine. It's, right. it's that it's that fast hit of dopamine. Yes, 
um, you know, that with with ADHD treatments, the, the onset of action is a lot slower. Yeah. We tend not to find people snorting their methylphenidate tablets. <laughs> it's a very expensive way to go about it. it. Yeah, trying to get it, trying to get a, a, a bigger hit. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't wake up in the morning and, and, and crave my LVADs. No. no. I, you, know, I, I, you don't crave your ADHD treatments. We're not in the same realm as, as addiction. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, um, you know, the, the dopamine-seeking behavior is something that sits in, in non-ADHD populations as well. And yeah, of because 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 dopamine is is nature's reward. It's nature's yeah. keep doing that because that will um, cause the species to continue to to exist. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's it's that basic bi- biological driver. And the reason I, I talk about this when I'm teaching um, clinicians is is to help them have some sense of the journey towards these more problematic concentrations of dopamine that are characterized in psychosis, that there's quite a journey to that. Now, I've had patients where I've been prescribing ADHD treatments, develop psychotic features. It's happened a few times, um, usually in people in their mid-20s because their brain is still developing. We're still giving them the dose that they used to have, but their brain is has adapted and they don't need as much concentration of medication anymore. And then we need to bring that dose down or even stop the medication. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So um, I presume, again, this is this will come with experience, but spotting the shift from green to to yellow to amber to red can only take experience and, and seeing enough patients to, to hear what they're saying, see how they're presenting in front of you. Would that be right? Um. Ultimately, yes. However, if at the start of the journey you explain this, you can equip people with the information that there will come a point as we increase your dose where the next step isn't as effective as the step before. Really simple thing to say to someone. If you increase the dose and your attention isn't as good as it was yesterday when you took a lower dose, step back. we're, we're probably looking at too much dopamine transmission, and we need to step that dose back. Right. Yep. But be honest, we've got never heard that before. So yeah, if we've got people putting pressure, I need a a stronger dose because it's not lasting through my workday. You know, your guy at four o'clock and having his crap. You know, actually, by increasing his morning dose, all we're doing is taking him closer to that red zone. We're not keeping him in the green. We're just his whole day is going to be shifted closer to the red zone. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, this is all about information, isn't it? The, The I think the theme that I'm getting from everything you're saying is the better the information we give to people at the start of the process. Hence the reason for this. But the better the information, the more control, the more agency we're giving people to understand what medication should do, what good looks like, what not good looks like. Rather than that paternal, you're the psychiatrist, I'll do whatever you say and I won't question it, but now I don't think it works, why? Yeah. Right. I, 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 that's so important, which is really interesting now, because I'm now looking at the questions we've been sent. And they're all about information. 
I could look at all of them apart from one topic, and I'm pretty sure you can guess what this is, although it sort of falls into the same bracket. All bar one question, this is information that we could get at the start of the process. This is information that we could present before we even put a, a tablet or a capsule in our mouth to, to know the answers to preempting questions. Yeah. Right. We should be doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because the medicines are effective doesn't mean that people don't need to know how to use them. No. You know, there's this over-reliance on, wow, these drugs are really effective and they, they tend to work. Well, great. Yeah, they do. But if you tell me how, I can use them more effi- more effectively, more quickly. Right. Doesn't that make perfect yeah. sense? R- okay. Rather than you know, go away and, and come back in three months for a review and we'll see how yeah. three months of torment's been because I haven't given you the information you need to make decisions about whether to back off on the dose or, you know. Yeah. Or to give you, you the know, flexibility or the control to say take a day off if you want a creative day or a, you know you spending the day with the kids playing all of that information Absolutely. which could make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Okay. So um, the first thing I'm going to say is, without any question, the most common topic when we said medication that we were asked about was from ladies asking about connections between hormones and and their cycle and menopause and perimenopause and, and everything to do with the connections between estrogen and progesterone and, and ADHD. Andrew, I think you agree with me. That has to be at some point our podcast in its own right. So it definitely does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, as we've said from the start, what I will endeavour to do with Andrew is we will get somebody else with us who who can talk on this with with Andrew, with me, who's a specialist, who understands this, has done the research, because if we try and answer these questions now, we're going to literally gloss over them, I think is, is what I'm conscious of. So, ladies, I will promise you this, this is coming, but we want this to be the most useful episode for you and therefore to have all the time to do all the research. So the questions we've had so far, I'm going to bank and I'm going to come back to them when we do that episode. So you haven't been forgotten. We've got them all, but we'll save them for another, uh, another question. Right. So let's go through some of the, the, the other ones. then, if I can, I'm going to go through these in no particular order, apart from top to bottom, Andrew, um, long-term risks. Are there any known long-term risks from taking ADHD medication? No, that was a short answer. Fantastic. Okay. The, the long answer. The long answer is a little bit more complex than that. Um, so the, the the long-term effects studies haven't been done. However, reframe the question, and I can give you loads of information. Okay. Are there any long-term risks from not taking ADHD medications when you have ADHD? Yes. Yes. Every single disease of aging, you are more likely to experience if you have ADHD and you're not taking medication. Now, that comes from population studies in Scandinavia. So they do naturalistic observation. Their health system is designed to monitor. So they can pull this data. And they've looked at people who are diagnosed with ADHD who don't take medication, people who do, and looked at their long-term story. And every single disease of aging is worse 
in people with ADHD who don't take medication. Um, there was a study came out um, just a few weeks ago that talked about the increased risk of dementia in the unmedicated ADHD cohort. Wow. So the so the 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 research is looking more towards what happens if you don't medicate rather than what what if you do. But I think you know the. the this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about um, titration. We do a lot of monitoring. We look, we're not looking at your blood pressure today to see if you're going to have a heart attack tomorrow because you take LVANS. What we're doing when we're monitoring your blood pressure is, are we asking your blood pressure to be consistently higher than we would like it to be? Because if we are, doing that long term will increase the risk of heart disease in later life. Right. So a lot of the the monitoring, the questions and and getting feedback from from people as they're titrating is notoriously difficult. We've never cracked it. (laughs) Getting people to to submit that, the the, the, uh, feedback on um, how the medication's going, what's happening with blood pressure and all that, really difficult to do. But it's really important because that is where your ADHD specialist is trying to protect that long-term health. Right. We're looking for those early signs. That's and and you know that first dose in titration where we we're not giving enough to impact on ADHD. What we're looking for is is those little clues that we're moving mm-hmm. towards long term risks. So actually, you know, yeah. th- we have to ask the question the other way around: Are there any long term risks from not? And yes, yeah. there are. Sounds good. Uh, you've just answered the next question, I think. So the question was, can senior citizens take ADHD meds? And is there an age when it would be recommended to stop taking them? But listening to what you've just said from the Scandinavian studies, I'm I'm erring on the side of n- no. Um, yes, they can. And I guess we, tell you what we there don't is. care. Yeah, what there is, and I think this is another subject for another day, um, there, there is an inherent ageism. In, in in our system because when we turn 65 you know those of us who are over 30 that are taking adhd medications and therefore we're going to need them long term you know we, we'll, we'll always mm. need that impact of the medication to a greater or lesser degree when i turn 65 i'm not going to suddenly magically no um you know, have a have a remission of ADHD any more than you know twenty years ago we thought kids did when they mm. turned eighteen. It's it, the same issue is now playing out in adulthood, and I know that there are people who were in their fifties when I started in ADHD who are now over sixty five. I wonder what's happened to those because I, you know, it, it, it's it's not clear how people are transitioning into old age services. And, um, you know, it it varies from, from location to location. Um, From our own experience, we've, we've seen some pretty horrific ageism. um, And and as a private provider, I've been able to step in and and Mm -hmm. give medications to people over 65. And, you know, the same safety checks apply and, the the vulnerability to to the strain of ADHD medications must be considered. But mm. if you've got someone who's if you've got a ninety year old who is wanting to take ADHD medications and there are no biological reasons any more than there were when they were fifty, why 
then then they should continue yeah. and they should access that medication. And I suppose um, that leads into this uh, conversation again for the, the day that things like the care system and care homes and private care, there should be training on adult ADHD there because just because somebody's in a care home, like you say, doesn't mean their ADHD has stopped or they no. don't have ADHD just because they may be slower or their cognition may have changed those struggles with ADHD may be there. And if that affects them, then care for ADHD is as important there as it was before they come into the care home as well. Absolutely. And I've, I've heard things said like, um, well, what's the point in medicating someone over 65? What a, what a horrific thing for, for a clinician to say, but I've had that said to me. Wow. Yeah. What's the point? Um, I, I was blown away by that because I, you know, the, the, of the over over sixty fives that I've treated, there's lots of point. You know, that people getting out in the garden and doing things that they yeah. thought were they were past that, and and they're not. They just got stuck. Um, wow. That's, so so that yes, is horrific. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, we'll so go. Yes. Yeah. There are no restrictions on prescribing to people over 65 other than the restrictions that would play if you're under 65 around it being biologically safe to ask your body to process that drug. Okay, fair enough. Right, next one then. I'm going to lump two questions together, sort of. There were a couple of people asking about um, CBD oil and CBN oils in in relation to them helping alleviate symptoms, so in conjunction with medication. Um, I know some people choose to take it standalone, but somebody else asked the question, hold on a minute, are there any known interactions? Which was then followed by another question, which is something we hear a lot about, for example, not taking vitamin C um, with or at the same time. Right now, these are all these things we hear. So let's, let's broadly do this. What known interactions are there with stimulants? Let's let's start with that. Is there anything we should be avoiding if we're on stimulant or non-stimulant meds that you, as a clinician, say just don't, or it's going to have an effect? No. Um, I'm I'm being intentionally blunt in my answers. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Of course there are interactions, um, but those interactions aren't happening in a test tube. They're happening in person. And those interactions should have been considered by your prescriber. So long as you're telling your prescriber what you're taking, and right. that's not just in terms of prescribed medicines, that's over the counter. It could be supplements as well. I've had yeah. lots of people their fingers burned with, with supplements. Um, and, you know, vitamins, minerals, those sorts of things, all absolutely fine. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to bring to the party, and maybe that's a conversation we need to have. Yeah. But, but you know, some of the stuff you can buy in Holland and Barrett can have some really horrific interactions, and I've seen them with um, with stimulants. And you know, people thought, "Oh, I, oh, I got it in Holland and Barrett. I didn't think I needed mm. to say." So now, they, you mentioned they, something uh, about serotonin overdosing. I've got the wrong term there. Serotonin syndrome. Serotonin syndrome. See, I knew there was something. What's that? Where does it come into this conversation or does it? Um, so it, this is about the interaction of, of ADHD drugs with largely you encounter it with, um, with co-prescribed antidepressants as well. But there are, there are lots of 
serotonergic drugs, so increasing the concentration of serotonin. If that concentration gets too high, like in dopamine, if the concentration becomes too high, we see psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. If we do that with serotonin, we see the system shut down. You get um, visual disturbance, not not just hallucination, but very strange stuff happens. The whole body starts to shut down. We see just it's horrific. Um, And you can build up with quite innocuous things to it, to the risk point of serotonin syndrome. Um, So anybody that's taking an ADHD medication plus an antidepressant should be looking out for the signs of um, serotonin syndrome, particularly as they're titrating. I think this is a... Go on. go on, you've got. I was going to say, is question. it recoverable? So if you go, mm, I think this is, and you go to, is that stop that serotonin based medication, and you should return to a baseline. Yeah. So, it, so it, it, even better than that, if if things are going pear shaped, you can phone an ambulance, and that can be reversed. So it's it's yes, oh, wow. there is the long term reverse, but if you, if you are showing signs of serotonin syndrome, phoning an ambulance and getting medical attention can reverse that okay right but it, it's 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 not a very well understood no um condition out there in the public i think there's some reservations amongst prescribers um because they're they're not really clear because there's there's not sort of definite levels there's not sort of if mm. you do x and y then you'll induce serotonin syndrome but having that information and understanding what it looks like and i can certainly share some information with you about what it looks like um it's it is entirely reversible yeah but i think you've asked about sort of lots of things there these interactions and i you know i I do a a two-hour lecture on this okay right yeah yeah so let's go for a summary then if I said there could be, but you should discuss the moody prescriber. Um, yeah, yeah. Your, pres- your prescriber should be considering it. Um, things like, um, can I take vitamin C with my Elvance in the morning as well? You, d- you get varying views on this. Um, so this is only my view. Um, and my view is that so long as you do the same thing every day, so if you have... You know, a glass of Barocca, with, you take your Elvance with a glass of Barocca. As long as you always do that, it will always have that impact on your Elvance. So you'll be titrated to a dose right. that fits with your vitamin C. It's only when you make changes. So where we see problems arise is when an antidepressant is stopped and the levels change yeah. or when someone sure. introduces a new, I've got this new fantastic supplement from Mon and Barrett, and we see huge changes in because of interactions. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think anything it's 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 worth researching, looking into, finding out, asking questions, going on to things like the WhatsApp group that you've started. Mm. But they, you know, there's, there's lots of people you can ask. But mostly, the person who's responsible for prescribing your your stimulants is the, is the person to really ask yep. because they're going to have the best sense. Um, so, so yeah, it's complicated, and interactions are, are something that the often catch people out and often make people who are prescribing ADHD treatments overcautious. Right. Um, so you, you'll hear, um, I'd, I'd, I've seen this, um, I've got to stop my antidepressant because I'm starting ADHD medication. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah no, yeah. you don't. 
No, you don't. What you need is an ADHD specialist who can factor that in. Because the likelihood is, it depends on which antidepressant, but the likelihood is what's going to happen is the, the concentrations of both are going to be boosted by each other. So they, because they're cleared out in the liver the same way, mm. sometimes it takes longer to clear out both drugs because both drugs are there. Yeah. And, it, you know, that, that's where you really need a prescriber to think about that because they, you know, yeah. there's over 20 antidepressants and I can't list them all now, but... Um, no, again, but is this a, a part of the problem with this? Generalised sweeping statements that that we see repeated that then start to become accepted as fact. And what we should yeah. do is go, oh, I've seen that, but I'll ask a professional. You yeah. Know, like, to me, that's always seemed like a logical thing. You know, I've seen this. Can you tell me about it? But I, I, there's there's an awful lot of that, I think, now. Well, I've seen that online, therefore it must be true. Yeah, but it's, it's only true in, yeah, it's true in some cases. So there are, there are yeah. some sort of genetic sensitivities so we can see in certain cultural populations we can, we can predict certain responses because of um, differences in, in, in genetics. You know, we, mm. we can actually, we can predict, oh, it's better to use that drug than that drug because this, you know, that population oh, yeah. don't metabolize that drug particularly well. And that's kind of what the job of a specialist should be, not yes. just not just saying, well, well, the guidelines say give methylphenidate first. You know, yes, you can work through like that and it'll keep you relatively safe, but yeah. an experienced clinician will be looking at all of these sensitivities, looking at the relationship between the endocrine system and, and medications for, for mental health and for, yeah. for ADHD. Makes sense. Okay, now this one we think we've sort of already touched on almost even answered, but I'll, I'll read it verbatim and then see where we go. Um okay. Somebody said, I've got personal experience of a friend whose son was diagnosed with ADHD at around eight years old, and she resisted medicating until now. He's now in year 11, uh, so what, 13, 14, I presume. Uh, and she wants to give him the best chance at his GCSEs. Since being on medication, he's now thriving in school, hmm. and his grades are fabulous. She now wishes that she had medicated sooner. What about the very little children being diagnosed at six and parents who were reluctant to medicate due to the, and I will quote, never-ending list of side effects? Well, it was all going well till the last part of that question, which is really easy to answer until that last... I thought you might say that somehow. Um, so... The, guide, the NICE guidance tells us that we shouldn't rush in with medications. So mm -hmm. We should try to put supports in place, adjustments, accommodations that enhance the strengths that the child has. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's right when you're talking about a six-year-old. I have seen six-year-olds where I thought the only thing we can do here is medicate. <laughs> you know, that, that actually that we've got to do that first to, yeah. to get that focus. But I, I think as you move through the primary school years, so between where where are we, year one and year six, mm. we're moving closer to a point where we say, actually, that those difficulties that are happening in school are getting in the way. So, so by the time you're at SATs, in my opinion, 
that's where we need to start having conversations about medication. Year 11 is not the time to be thinking, oh, I need to get medication in place. It's too late. It's too late by that stage. Um, because in year 11, they've already done year 10, which is the first half of their GCSE courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's... So they've, 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 they've done half of the course. It's a change. Without medication. So, yeah, the, you, you'll see grades improve, but it's 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 too late if you're wanting to optimise that first round of GCSEs. You know, it's, right. it's never too late. I was 45 when I started ADHD medication. Yeah. But if you're wanting to, to catch, there, there, there is a bit of a sweet spot, isn't there? And I think that's what the question's asking. When yeah. is the right time? What is the right age to medicate my child? Yeah. And I think... It's somewhere between year six and year nine. Okay. So, so that you're middle school age. Middle yeah, school age. Middle school age. All right. Now I'm going to follow on with this question because it's another one that's interesting. And I think based in, you know, maybe some mis- misinterpretation, but I, again, um, can I ask Andrew if ADHD medication in developing brains can alter their development so dependence can become an addiction as the brain gets used to the chemicals being there each day as it's developing and this have other impacts later in life and could it be that developing brains need regular medication breaks um so that addiction doesn't form I can see where the the person asking that question is coming from but it's actually the other way round yeah. So brains adapt to optimize what happens more frequently. Yeah. So if you do something a lot, it practice makes perfect, doesn't it? The more mm. you do something, you know, the, these concepts of muscle memory that yeah, people talk yeah, about, yeah, yeah. the more you do something, the more you learn how to do it. It just becomes second nature. Yeah. That is your brain adapting. That's yeah. your brain establishing stronger pathways of, of, of that thought. Yeah. By giving, by giving medication earlier, we're optimizing the chance that those pathways will become better, you know, better worn, better worn pathways. <laughs> and, and because of that, in a, a brain under 25, we're increasing the likelihood that those, that those paths will remain worn. Whereas if we take breaks, we're reducing. Yeah. So, so it's, it's actually the opposite of yeah, what the person asking that question. Yeah, um, but I, yeah, as you, I get, I get the understanding of why I frame that way, but yeah, I'm with you on that. Right. Uh, almost the last one. Now, this is a very topical one, given we've just been seeing in the UK a shortage of, of supply of medication, of delivery rather than production, as we spoke about. But given that, the question is, is interesting, and this is not the first time I've heard a similar story. So what's your take? Uh, my husband has always had a hot temper since he start a, uh, started taking Elvance in April. It hugely improved his mood, resulting in a far better quality of life, not just for him, but for me and our kids too. He now can't get hold of his Elvance and has been prescribed Concerta as an alternative, but it's not helping. He's been rationing his remaining Elvance and only taking them when he's got really important work. Since not taking Yelvance every day, though, his mood has been swinging between low and volcanic. How can I best support him until Yelvance is resumed? Now, I completely empathise with that, but 
there's two parts to that. There's the, there's the element for me of Elvance, like we said earlier, was the one that worked for that individual. Perhaps concerns are not so much. But also then this rationing of only taking when he thinks is needed. But the mood bit, I think, is the heart of that issue. Yeah. Okay. So there's this there I think there's a three stage answer to that. Um odd choice to go from Elvance to a bridging prescription of Concerta. So Concerta's active ingredient is methylphenidate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, you know, I, I think as prescribers, we've faced lots of, of, of difficult decisions about what to do for each person, and each person's sort of bridging strategy has to be tailored to them. There's no, there's no blanket answer. But just the, the very action of, of, of thinking about using methylphenidate over, mm. over, over a dexamphetamine based project, that product, that's going to have an impact straight away um rationing the doses of elvance yeah i can completely understand why doing that i've heard people talk about taking less as well so you know i'm not i'm I'm not going to use it um i'm going to sort of use a lower dose each day well a lower dose isn't going to get you over that effective concentration so you're just you're stretching out that you're making the problem worse you're never going to get an effective dose so actually holding on and rationing out those doses is probably the right way to go. However, the caveat there is if you're taking high dose, so, you know, 50, 60, 70 milligrams of Elvance and even above, um, it can be difficult to sort of step on and off doses. So you can miss doses of stimulants, but the higher the dose, the more likely if you take some time off that you'll have more marked side effects when you go back to it. So there's a little bit of caution in in higher doses about stepping on and off. So the the third part of this situation is is this word mood. Um, And it means so many different things to different people. Um, And I I think what what this person is asking about is it's not actually mood. It's about someone who is experiencing additional strain, is getting agitated, frustrated, and doesn't have the medication that is helping them to, uh, helping them to regulate that because the Elvance isn't there. Um, so it's for everybody to to recognise that that there is this additional strain. Um, I, I, you know, Concerta isn't going to touch the sides. You would have to reach you'd have to retitrate Concerta to find mm. the right dose. Um, and I'm wondering whether that's been done. Um, you can't just sort of slot in a new dose of Concerta. And, you know, we, we're seeing the stocks of Elvance coming back now anyway. So the, the idea of rationing, I, I can understand that. And, I, mm. you know, it's it's different for different people, but I, I can understand where you're coming from. And it's better to, to have days of full dose than try and cobble through with half doses more days. You're not going to get more by half in your dose. Yeah, I, I yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, right now, I'm just scanning. I think, apart from all of the questions about ladies, that was that was the majority of the questions, and we lumped some of them together. The question that I was saving to last because it's the one I've been asked as a mentor more than any other that I know I asked and and that I hear all the time from people who say, "I know I've got ADHD. I've got a diagnosis, but." Either I don't want to take them or I don't want my child to take them because 
I don't want them to change or I don't want to feel like it's changed me. So my opinion is it will change you because of everything we've said. You will notice a change. That's the point. The point of taking ADHD meds is there is a change. That's why you've gone for the diagnosis in the first place. What I don't think it means is it doesn't fundamentally change you. It changes you when you take the meds for the purpose of taking them. Yeah. Do you agree with that in principle? Absolutely. I've stopped people's medication because they came back and said, thank you, my medication really helps me focus and concentrate. But they weren't them anymore. Yeah. And I just said, well, yeah, I'm sorry, that you might feel that that's great, but I'm not prepared to prescribe that for you anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, there, there are sort of um degrees of that on oh, no, that's a quite extreme example but mm. yeah part of the the titration process should be finding that level and it might be that it's not what the prescriber thinks is the optimal level yeah so a lot of that balance between autistic and adhd features that we've talked about often when i'm prescribing where there's coexisting autism it's not about chasing after laser precision focus it's about finding the balance that feels right for the person yeah yeah um so you know it, it, it's it's all well and good looking for you know a nice ticks all on the left hand side of a rating scale you know that that's lovely but mm. actually what does that tell us all that tells us is that the symptoms of adhd have improved it doesn't say anything about the person's life yeah. their expression of who they are um and, and you know that that I think is a lot of what's wrong with ADHD care is it's it's not personalised enough. It's just like a, like it's like a, a diabetes clinic. You know, we we mm. can titrate insulin levels to balance people's food, and we can teach people. But there's so much more to ADHD than that. Yeah, there is. And, wow. and our relationships with ourselves. Yeah, I'm glad I asked that. Right. So listen, before I wrap up and ask you the most important question, but what's the last thing? What's the one thing you would like to say to people? on this topic when they're thinking about or at the start of the medication journey? Um, that's a really pointed question. I think the main thing I would, that I would ask people to take away is question the relationship you have with your prescriber. If they are involving you in the decisions, then they're working with you. Mm. And that that is far more valuable than someone who has, you know, lots of letters after their name or whatever. It's, it's about a collaboration. If it doesn't feel like a collaboration, it doesn't feel comfortable to ask a question or there isn't time to ask a question, then they're shortchanging you. Because you should, this, the information I've given you today shouldn't be new to people with ADHD, but I know that it is because it's new to some psychiatrists when I tell them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I, folks, I would say exactly the same. If you don't feel comfortable with the person you're sat in front of and you don't feel like they're treating you like this is your ADHD, that you are trying to improve the quality of your life with their help they're maybe not the right person to be sat in front of. And I know that's difficult if you've paid lots of money for it. And But but it's something that's really worth um, considering. This is your ADHD. 
it's your life or your child's life. You have to feel like you've got a, a working relationship with that person um, because you'll get the best experience out of it if you do. Yeah, absolutely. I would go there, that. there should be no silly questions. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, on on the top, uh, subject of silly, I think it's only fair after a huge discussion like this, and and this was your idea, and I like it that we the, the, the you round each episode off with a little example of ADHD and reality, ADHD AF, as as people may uh, may describe it. So, I will let you tell me this: either the most ever or recent. What have you done that could illustrate to somebody, if they didn't know you, that you categorically do have ADHD, even though this is your career and your profession and you know a lot about it? Um, yeah, well, I, I spent eight years trying to convince myself, even though I knew about it, that I don't. Um, and I, I think the thing that I, I annoy me most with, and it still happens with medication, um, is having to come home because I've forgotten something. And it, it, it's just such a heart sink, and it happens every day. It's even with medication, I still get in the car to go somewhere and think I haven't done. Mm. You know, it, it, it's got to the point where I think, well, what is it that I've missed this time? Yeah. You know, and when I come back in the house, Sarah will say, oh, what's ADHD left in the house now? And I can then go go out and come back in again. So that that, that I think is probably the most observable. But there are loads. Oh. Uh, there, there are loads, and anybody who knows me would, would probably be better at telling you than yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, I, I I completely agree. And I, th- I I think that's the point, isn't it? We're all humans. We all have this same condition. These four letters just make things really interesting. But yeah, forgetting things, leaving things at home. Um, yeah, I I I completely completely agree with that. And uh, it's it's shocking. Thank you so much for your time. Um, As ever, and I'll say this every episode, I'm going to try and get references and and links that we will put in the show notes after this. So when it goes out, you can follow along with the transcripts and, and go away and do your own research. This information is not behind any kind of paywall if we can find you an article to it we will um if it's available um if it's scholarly articles obviously that might be a bit more difficult but we will we will do our best uh, and if you have questions or if you want to join the community um i'll put a link to that as well uh, and if you've enjoyed it please do join please do ask questions and get involved for, for future episodes but um that's been episode one of Talk ADHD, and I think that's exactly what we did. So, Andrew, thank you so much because I know I've taken up lots of your time, um, and and I really do appreciate it. Uh, and everyone else, thank you. This podcast will air every Thursday. Now there will be a new episode every Thursday, and uh, your suggestions for future topics will always, always be welcome. So, thank you very much. We will see you next Thursday. Thanks. Take care, everybody.